you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Luke 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Amen. Amen. Uh, So I was on an airplane recently. Don't know if you've flown recently, but uh, I was on an airplane recently and the crew was getting ready for takeoff. And of course, when the crew comes, you know, and gets the plane ready for takeoff, they make sure that all the stuff is taken care of, right? I mean, they make sure that your tray table is in its what? Upright. And locked position. Yes, that's important. Uh, that your pre-flight items are carefully stowed. That your seatbelt is not just fastened, but securely fastened. Yes. And the most important thing of all, that your cell phone is in that crucial airplane mode. So having on this trip dutifully obeyed my flight attendants, and of course I'd stowed uh, my laptop, I had nothing to do but watch the pre-flight safety instructions. And as I watched that very kind lady up front demonstrating how to put on the life vest in the unlikely event of a water landing. And by the way, that's only slightly terrifying. I don't even know what they mean by that. Do they mean it's unlikely we're going to go down at all? Or do they mean if we go down, it's unlikely we're going to find any water? between here and some other northern landlocked state with, you know, a puddle large enough to hold the flight. But anyway, it suddenly occurred to me, I have seen this demonstration at least a hundred times in my life. I have heard these instructions countless times. I've heard them tell me where to find the vest, how to put on the vest, how to buckle the vest, how to blow into the tube on the vest, but they're all different and depending on, you know, what you fly. But I'm still not sure I could even do this in an emergency point is this. Someone can tell me all day long how to do something, but until I do it myself, only or merely hearing about it won't help me. Only by doing can I fully learn and appreciate this life-saving device thing that my seat apparently comes equipped with. And so I think that prayer is a little or actually a lot like that, but not in the sense prayer is just something that you put on in case of emergencies. But more in the sense that prayer is something that we hear talked about a lot, but less we've seen practiced or even perhaps practice ourselves. 
And yet, prayer we see throughout the Bible is literally a life-saving gift every human being can access at any moment. Therefore, I think it's no wonder that this unnamed disciple here in Luke 11 comes up to Jesus and pleads with him after he hears Jesus himself pray. And this disciple says, Lord, teach us to do that. Teach us to do that. And here's what I think that disciple is saying. I think he's saying this, that God, I don't just want to be a person who only hears instructions about water landings, tray tables, life vests from some stranger babbling instructions in the distance. He's saying, Lord, I want to know from the source. I want to know someone who knows God to teach me. The word here is didasco. It means to impart. It means to instill a living knowledge or understanding of something. This disciple is saying, Lord, didasco me about prayer. Put what's inside you inside me. Teach me. Teach us to pray. And so that's my hope for Mosaic this month in August where we're looking at the subject of and the practice of prayer in the Bible. My hope would be that through it all, our response would be like this disciple here. We would say, Lord, teach us to pray. We want to do that. And here's why. Here's why. It's because as much as, I want you to hear this, as much as Jesus Christ came to teach us anything, teach you anything, as much as he came to teach us how to be people of peace, workers for justice, how to love our neighbors, even our enemies. Let me tell you, Jesus Christ also came to teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Because as we said last week, we said last week, I'll say it again, wild prayer is no substitute for action. Action is no substitute for prayer. And it wasn't in the life of Jesus either. So would you say with me as we get going today, would you just say with me what these disciples said? And I'll say with you out loud, we're going to say, Lord, teach us to pray. You ready? Let's say it with me. Here we go. Ready? Lord, teach us to pray. So Jesus is saying here in Luke 11, all right, y'all, you want to learn it? Here it is. When you pray, pray like this. Start like this. He says, our Father in heaven hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Uh, Back in the year 1946, there was this great and brilliant Christian author. Her name is Flannery O'Connor. Maybe you've heard of her. Uh, And she had reached a dead end in her spiritual life. Though she had uh, become a success, though she had been this like rock star in her day of uh, unpacking the hypocrisy she saw in a lot of the southern culture around her, though she was just adept and skilled, brilliant at describing, sketching the racism she saw baked into everyday life, even of the lives of people in the church. So even so, she still felt this and wrote this about herself in her journal. Look at what she said. She said, quote, mediocrity is a hard word to apply to myself. I have nothing to be proud of yet myself. I am stupid quite as stupid as the people I ridicule in my stories. Now, at some point, I think we all feel what Flannery felt here. I think we all feel at some point, I am a failure. Uh, I am no good. I, what have I accomplished in life? What have I done? I think we feel this way. I think especially creative people, if that's you, feel this way. I think leaders feel this way. We ask ourselves, I ask myself, what have I accomplished? What have I done? I think students feel this way. I think stay-at-home moms feel this way. Why? It's because people feel this way. But unlike many people who feel this way, Flannery didn't. Sit 
and simmer in her self-pity. No, she did something different. She began to pray her feelings, take her feelings, and began to pray them like we see in the Psalms. And this is what she discovered one day when she began to pray, when she took her feelings, when she prayed those things that she felt about herself to God. She discovered something that was shocking at first, but was ultimately freeing in the end. And this is what she wrote in one of her prayer journals. She wrote, God, Dear God, quote, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon. Again, she's a writer, right? You know, the slim crescent of a moon. That I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. What was she discovering? Well, she was discovering that she was in the way. She discovered that her love for herself was greater than her love for God. And in her case, it was causing these, bringing up these feelings of self-pity, self-flagellation, failure. Her love for herself was greater than her love for God, and it was killing her. And her prayer, her prayer life helped her, if you read her journals, not just discover that, oh, but change that. She was, in other words, in prayer, through prayer, discovering what that great African thinker, theologian, pastor, Augustine felt in his day. He wrote in his book along the same lines called Confessions. His book was called Confessions. And he wrote the same thing. And he wrote this quote. He said, true prayer is reordering your loves. True prayer is reordering your loves. Now, here's his argument. It's a good one. You're going to get it. Here it goes. He said, all people seek happiness. Fair enough. Yeah, we see that. All people seek happiness. And so we attach ourselves to things we think will make us really happy, truly happy. And, and then, because there's a reason, after all, we go back for that second helping of pie, right? Some of us that third or fourth pie. Uh, but that attachment is a kind of a love. We think it's going to make us happy. And we express this, and every culture does this in different ways. In English, we say stuff like, I love tacos. Because tacos, yes, because tacos make us happy, or at least one person happy, they make me happy too. Now you know. Uh, we say, I love chocolate. Some of us say, I love getting upgraded. That's a good one too. But our main problem, Augustine says, is this. Because sin distorts everything, our choices and our loves also get distorted. In other words, we misidentify what will really and truly make us happy. For example, you're a teenager, and so you think that like fitting in is what will make you happy. And let me tell you, if you feel that way, you're not alone. Man, there's so much pressure to fit in. High schools are full of so much junk, electronics, phone, TV, sex, vaping. Man, it goes on and on, and you think if I, if I do what they do on that show, or I take what they take at that party, or I smoke what they smoke, maybe I will fit in. You love to feel accepted and fit in, or, or, or you own your own business. And perhaps you, 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 know, you love it, and, and so you, you exploit uh, your employees because you love making money more, or you love your career. You pay it more mind than you do your relationships, or your health, or children, or family. In, in other words, Augustine said this, he, said we, he put it like this, he said, we either love what we ought not to love, or we fail to love what we ought to love, or we love more what we should love less. Or we love less, what we should love more. But at the center of all the misery caused by all of these, sorry, tainted loves, that was for all you Gen Xers out there, all these tainted loves stand one thing. We do not love God 
most of all. We don't, here it is, hallow him. We don't make him most or best or deepest or most central. And so here is the truth, that ultimate truth that Augustine drove at, which is this. He said that God, hear me, made you for himself. And until you find your heart's rest and place in him, you will be restless. Your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in him. And so Jesus is saying here the same thing. If we will hallow God, if we will place who he is and praise God first and most and best for who he is now, 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 somehow everything else like tumblers and a lock begin to fall into place. That is what Jesus is teaching about true spiritual reality and your human nature. And as a matter of fact, let me tell you, those in church history, you can read it, who have done this the most, and I'll go so far as to say, I'll bet the people in your life you know who do this the most are somehow the happiest people you know. They're somehow the most content people you know. Not that everything is right in their lives. Not that they don't experience pain or tragedy. Not that they even think everything is okay and right in the world because they don't. But they have learned that to relate to God means to hallow who he is. Loving him most of all. Praising him most of all. And let me tell you, if, you, if we will do this, this practice of prayer and praise can change us from the inside out. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, quote, I have noticed that the humblest and at the same time most balanced and liberated minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrow the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy person, even if luxuriously brought up, could still praise a modest meal, but the snob found fault with all. He concludes like this, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. And here's why praise is inner health made audible. Here's why. It's because if God really is, which he is, the most loving being, the most just being, the most fully content and integrated being in all the universe, then putting that, loving that most at the center of who we are, putting it at the center of our heart and life and decisions and relationships can only help us become more and more like that. More healthy, more loving, more just, more fully integrated as people. True prayer is reordering our loves. We pray this, hallowed be thy name. What else does true prayer do? Let's go on and see. Jesus goes on to say next in verse three, give us famously, right? Each day, our daily bread. Now, this is only one line out of Jesus's whole prayer here, this thing that's known as the Lord's prayer. But what I want you to see is this. Out of all these things, all these lines, Jesus could have like brought his attention back to, circled back to. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, he circles back to one thing, and that is the whole daily bread bit. Look at how he goes on. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you got a friend. You go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loves of bread. Jesus is storytelling here. And, and you know, as a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, I've got no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, like be gone. <laughs> the door is already locked and my children or I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because he's your friend, yet because of your shameless 
audacity. And by the way, I love our church. I love Mosaic. First service, somebody said, yes, Lord, right there. And I heard shameless audacity. Translators got that one right. Shameless audacity. He will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Why does Jesus go on and on? It's because of this. He is reinforcing this singular incredible thought that God wants you and wants me to come to him with what we need. If not, beg him, pester him, annoy him until we get it. Bob Goff, you may know the name, is an award-winning writer and philanthropist, and he wrote this great book called Love Does. You should read it if you haven't. And in one of the chapters, he talks about a turning point in his life. And at this point in his life, he felt like he wanted to do something really big, wanted to change the world. And so, being a Christian person, having reordered his loves, he felt like God wanted him to become a lawyer. And, and so, but the problem with that, of course, is that to be a lawyer, you actually have to get into law school. And the only problem with getting into law school for Bob Goff was this, in his own words, quote, I wasn't the smartest kid growing up. He took the entrance exam and he did so poorly on it that all of the schools that he sent his test scores to did one of two things. First of all, they didn't even write him back because he said they knew that I knew that I shouldn't even be doing this in the first place. Or second, the second uh, schools kind of category of schools, uh, they went out of pity when they mailed back his rejection letter, they refunded his application fee. <coughs> because his test scores were so bad, they like figured anybody with scores that bad needs the money way more than we do. But Bob Goff still felt like he was supposed to go to law school. And so he figured out which school he wanted to go to. And so five days... Before this law school started, he called up the dean and made an appointment to see him. And so he goes in to see the dean of that law school. He walks in. He shakes the dean's hand firmly. He hands him his test scores, looks him right in the eye and says, I want to come to your law school. The dean took one look at his scores, looked back up at Bob Goff, stood up, went over, put his hand on his shoulder, took him out the door, stood him up, took him out and said, it's been nice meeting you. And as the door was slamming shut, Bob literally stuck his foot into the door, put his head around the corner and said, listen, Dean, I know how this whole thing works. You know, ignore the scores. All I know is that you can just say the word, just say the word and I'll be in. Just tell me, go buy your books and I'll get started. And the Dean looked at him and said again, it's been nice meeting you. The next day, four days before law school begins, Bob Goff comes back to that law school, that dean's office, and he parks himself right outside the office. And every time the dean would walk in and out, Bob Goff would pester him and say, just tell me, I know you can do it. Just tell me, go buy your books. Come on, just tell me to go buy them. And so nothing though, nothing happened on the fourth day. The next day, three days before law school starts, Bob Goff did the same thing again all day, but nothing happened the third day. And he comes back with two days left till law school starts. And by now, he, he has figured out the dean's schedule. He knows when the guy takes his lunch. He knows when he goes to the bathroom. Uh, he knows when his appointments are, all of that. Nothing happens that day. Nothing happens the day before. And then finally, the first day of law school starts, and Bob Goff thinks, okay, I'd better get there early. So he arrives by 7 a.m. He goes and parks himself on that same bench. And then, sort of shockingly, he finds out the dean didn't even come to work that day. Didn't even come to school. Bob Goff figures, I'm just going to sit here all day anyway. 
all day. And he does that all day for the first day, all day for the second day of law school, all day for the third day. And by now, Bob's getting impatient. If it were me, I'd have been long ago impatient. But Bob's finally getting impatient. And he's thinking, I am, he says, three days behind in a school I haven't even gotten into yet. Something's got to give. Day four of law school comes and goes. Day five comes. And in this day, and finally he's sitting there feeling real sorry for himself. And the dean comes down the hallway towards him. He hears the dean coming toward him. And he thinks, what's the dean coming toward me for? It's not his lunch. He doesn't normally go to the bathroom this time. And so while Bob Goff is looking down at his feet, thinking this, he looks up, sees the dean standing over him. The dean looks at him, winks at him and says, go buy your books. And that's how Bob Goff got into law school. And he did so well, he's now an adjunct professor at Pepperdine. He's recognized as a U.S. diplomat for his work trying to end uh, child trafficking and sex slavery around the world. He sold like a zillion copies of his book, his own life story. But it all began right there. Bob Goff bothered his way into law school. Bob Goff pestered annoyed his way into law school. Bob Goff, to use Jesus' own words here, showed shameless audacity in his request to the dean. And so I think Jesus Christ, in effect, is saying here that God wants you to Bob Goff him. God wants you to Bob Goff him. Be shameless about what you're asking him for, believing for. Bring him your biggest hopes and your biggest dreams. God wants you to Bob Goff him. And the more I look at this this week, the more that I saw this, that the people in the Bible who were the closest to God asked him for the most. Abraham asked God for proof. When God told him he was going to be a blessing to the whole world, uh, Moses asked God to see his glory. David asked God for a whole kingdom to be established. And even when some of that, that cast of characters called the disciples, you know, that rogues gallery, that group of ne'er-do-wells Jesus gathered, even when people like James and John, even when they asked Jesus for weird stuff like, Jesus, we want to rule the galaxy with you one day. Sit on your right, sit on your left. Jesus is like, maybe, but you're going to suffer between now and then, you know, since you're asking. Even when they ask him weird stuff, selfish stuff, they still showed us something crucial, which is this. That those who somehow, who know God best, walk with him near us, somehow perceive that not only is he all-powerful, but that he is all-loving, that he wants to give good things. The people in the Bible who knew God best didn't ask him for the least. They asked him for the most. They asked him for the stars. And God is never, ever offended. Why? Here it is. It's because when we reorder our loves, we refine our courage. When we reorder our loves, we refine our courage. Let me tell you, when you hallow his name, when God becomes most, deepest, best, highest, central in your life. Now, your inner health begins to return, right? And what is healthier in our lives than courage? What is healthier in our lives than courage? What does our nation need right now more than courage? Oh, we need courage, but we have to reorder our loves. These people in the Bible, they all found courage in prayer that enabled them not just to sit still, but to speak up, to speak out, to sacrifice, to give their lives even in death, to show the world that God's name was worth hallowing. They reordered their loves and they refound their courage. If you're saying today, Morgan, I want to do the same thing, let me tell you, you can. 
You can reorder your loves. You can refine your courage if you'll do. If you'll pray, not just the, not just the last thing that Jesus shows us here, but actually if we'll do and pray, the first thing Jesus shows us here. In other words, before we reorder our loves, even refine our courage, we have to do this. We need, most of all, to rediscover a name. Rediscover a name. Where does prayer truly begin for the Christian person? Here it is. It means to pray this. Our Father. Our Father. You know, Jesus could have said when he's teaching on prayer, he could have said, begin like this. Oh, our great king. He could have, but he didn't. God is our king after all. Jesus could have said, when you start uh, praying, pray this. Our friend. He could have, but he didn't. He could have said, pray our shepherd, our creator, but he doesn't. When you pray, pray our father. Why? Over in Matthew 6, it's a parallel passage to Luke 11. Just before Jesus teaches through the same thing here, teaches through the Lord's Prayer, Jesus shows us there are two fundamental ways the human heart comes to God. And each way, he's saying, shows up or is exposed when we pray. The first way he shows us is here in verse 7 of Matthew 6. Jesus says, when you pray, same context, do not keep on babbling like pagans, For they think they will be heard because of their many words. So he's saying there's a a way that a kind of a person approaches God in, in, in a certain way. And it looks and thinks, this person thinks like this. They think I will be heard because of my own because of. Because of my many words. Because I somehow have earned the ear of God. Or in this case, the gods. I will be heard because I do enough. I say enough. I pray enough. Jesus is saying they think they will be heard because they think they deserve it. The first way to God he's showing us, the first way to pray, will be to come to him then like a renter. Like a renter. A renter is someone who, who, who what does what? They pay their rent and they believe because of his or her many dollars, that they deserve the attention, the service, uh, the, the performance of the landlord. A renter believes they deserve the service of the landlord when they ought to get it because of their many dollars. Oh, but Jesus says immediately, oh, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray our father in heaven. What's he showing us? He's showing us that God is not a landlord, and we are not his renters. Hear me, both of those terms cheapen and diminish who God is and who you are to him. No, he says God's our father. Now, this name, of course, this blew the Jewish mind. It still blows people's minds today. You only find this in the Christian faith. Muslims would never call God this, nor would Buddhists or Taoists or Hindus. God is either too remote, too distant, or too non-existent to ever be known as father and called father. And yet, to the one who claimed to know God best, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus is saying there's a second way, a better way to come to God, not as a a renter. Oh, but because God is our heavenly father, we can come to him as a child, as a child, which shows us this, that the only real reason in the end a person deserves to be heard by God is not because of their because of, it's because of 
God's because of. Not because they have paid something, but because he has paid something. You say, well, what do you mean? Come on here. Every parent in here, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you're not a parent, but you're a mm, auntie, uncle, grandparent, you know, guardian, and you babysit your nieces and nephews or some kid, you know, you know that to have children or to take care of children costs you I can leave it like that, but I won't. Especially at first. You provide everything. And the child provides you nothing in return but a full diaper for your changing pleasure, right? Being a parent is expensive, laborious, painstaking, and feels mostly unrewarding. Being a parent means you endure all the child's demands, even while you pay all the costs. But God is telling us here, you're not my renters. I'm not your landlord. No, he says, remember when you pray, remember you are supposed to relate to me differently. And let me tell you, suggest to you, if today, if you are somehow angry that God has not met your demands, answered your prayers like you think, maybe it's because you have never learned how to relate to him truly and firstly as a good father, right? Let me tell you, God isn't a landlord. You can control or put in your debt because of your many good intentions, your many good choices, your many good services or prayers. That's not who he is. Why? Because a child hasn't earned anything. A child has only heard why. Because he or she has a status, a status before that parent. Let me tell you, if, you, if one of you today, if you come into my bedroom at 3 a.m. and ask me for a cup of cold water or for anything else for that matter, I might add. It's going to get weird and messy, like real fast. But if one of my child, children, if my child, one of my children comes into my bedroom at 3 a.m. and asks me for something, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, go ask your mother. (laughs) No, I'm going to, or at least a good father would respond to them. Why? Not because they pay the rent, but because they're my child. And if someone is God's child, hear me, it's not because they have done enough. It's only because God has done enough. The reason we can't actually in the end deserve to be heard is not because we have paid our dues, but only because Jesus, the perfect son of God, has paid what was due. On the way to the cross, didn't Jesus live out what he prayed, what he taught us? Yes, in the garden he prays, God, I don't want to go, but yet not my will. But your will be done. Hallowed be, he saying, your name. Jesus reorders his loves in the garden and finds his courage to go to the cross. And then on that cross, as he hung bleeding and dying for you, for me, in your place, this perfect son, child, becomes the ultimate outcast. As he was dying and bleeding, we hear Jesus pray and ask what we feel and we ask God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Here's why he's praying that. In that moment, he is cosmically, universally getting what we deserve for all the ways we live selfishly, act selfishly, don't love our neighbor as ourselves, don't love God as we ought to. He is doing a divine, supernatural exchange so that we can get what he deserves as the perfect, flawless, and matchless son of God. We can get the everlasting attention of the Father heart of God. And if for some reason today, let me tell you, if you aren't feeling 
like you're getting what you need or what you're asking for. I want you to know today, you can hear this. The reason isn't because that you're not loved. That can't be the reason. No, because you are loved. You have become, because of Jesus, now the child of God. And let me tell you, when you know that you are loved like this, isn't it easy to drop all those lesser loves that kill us and choke us? Isn't it? Yes, it is. And when we know, when we rediscover that name, we can reorder our loves and refine our courage. We can do that. Let me tell you, don't just take it from the flight attendant up front today. Put this on for yourself. Put it on for yourself. Oh, praying our Father, hallowed be your name. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.